Hang on a sec. Just recording a podcast. It's called the Boost Monitors Podcast. Give me a sec. The Boost Monitors Podcast. You start feeling this weight on your shoulders, you know, chasing those stats a bit and chasing those accolades. I think I just realised that I was just like, I don't really, that's not really what I'm looking to do. Success is fan-bloody-tastic and we all want more of it. But feeling that you're creatively being able to do what you want and be who you want to be is just worth its weight in gold. We did this like set in this about 300 capacity room and everyone was kind of, they were dancing, but it's like mainly just like all eyes forward watching at your every single move. And there was even a moment where we did like a drop and like people started clapping. It was like, <laughs> well done, well done. And I was just like, I was just like, what? This is so bizarre. <laughs> This is the Booth Monitors podcast. I'm your host, Jared Mannion, and I'm back. It's been a while, so apologies for that. I'm sure the thousands of people who listen to this have all been waiting desperately for the latest episode. So don't worry, I'm here, and there are more podcasts to come. We're opening things up again with an amazing guest. Before I introduce him, though, just a reminder to hit subscribe. Also, please leave a review and let me know what you think. Give me some suggestions or something you want me to read out. Get me on socials. It's at gmanion underscore on Insta and TikTok. And also at Booth Monitors Podcast on Insta and Facebook. Okay, see if you recognize these tunes. Those are the smash hits from the platinum-selling DJ duo Blonde. On top of three records going platinum, they've had crazy chart success. They've also got loads of writing credits with other artists, including the hit record from Ed Sheeran and Rudimental, Lay It All On Me. One half of the duo is my guest on this episode, Adam Englefield. Before Blonde, he was one of the founders of the YouTube channel Eaton Messy, which has over 400,000 subscribers. Now, though, he's left Blonde and he's putting out music under his new project, Pablo Bravas. We dive into all stages of his career, and as you can tell, he's done some really cool stuff. Here's a taster of his latest track as Pablo Bravas. I get a feeling that I talk too much when you don't want to let me speak. But there's a reason that I talk too much, I just want you to get me. I'm alone with my feelings, and it's all too familiar. It's so you walking out that door, I don't even cry anymore. Even down on my knees, my feet. Bang on time, man. Jeez. If it, also, the first podcast to start to start right on time at the time we set. So well done on that. It's a rarity, mate. I'm not, I'm not usually this punctual. I will warn you. <laughs> good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, thanks for doing it, man. I appreciate it. And it's good to see you again. I know, mate. It's uh, been a fucking moment, isn't it? I know. I know, man. I know. So we, we met, obviously. So we booked you. I, I booked mm. you in, in Galway once upon a time. And then, yeah. bre- and then I hadn't, like, obviously seen you since or whatever. And then met you... 
in a bar in London about this time. Oh no, it wasn't this time last year, but basically a year or two ago. It was, yeah. And uh, yeah, brought back those memories because I hadn't hadn't seen you. I think blonde hadn't seen blonde about for a bit after that. So I was like, I saw you, I recognised you straight away. Thought I'd just evaporated um, off the planet or something. <laughs> that, that was it. But I follow you on Instagram and stuff, so I knew you were alive. <laughs> Yeah, I knew you were alive, exactly. But we'll get into all of that because sure. I think it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting story. But I think, so the way, I, I want to give sort of a, a background, the best background possible to, to you and your story and like your, what you've done in music, right? And I suppose the best way that I could um, describe it is possibly in three parts. You've got Eaton Messy, um, which is the YouTube channel and the label. And then you've got, Blonde, so you were one half of the DJ duo Blonde, and then now you release under Pablo Bravas. That's correct. Yeah, there's th- there's like three incarnations. I've so yeah, the it started at the beginning with Eaton Messi, and then and, and then Blonde, and then now we're in the third phase, which is Pablo Bravas. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, yeah, I figured that that was the best sort of timeline to describe kind of who you are. I think to be fair, I think I'd like I like to start with. Blonde and that stage, and we can kind of go back to eating messy and all that yeah, kind of man. stuff. Because, like, Blonde, you were big. Yeah, definitely. Like, we, we kind of came in as all of that kind of stuff was really beginning to build momentum. It was like when Second City and Route 94 uh, had those big records out. And um, we'd actually, we actually wrote I Loved You before those tunes even came, those tunes even came out and were massive hits. Um, you know, the second city one and the Route 94. And, and we were like, God, we've got to move quickly on this because this is obviously a sound that's working really well now. And we we actually signed that record to uh, Parlophone straight off the bat. But we were like sat on it for about a year uh, just because of label politics and so on and so forth. And then eventually we got it out and then it was just kind of, it, it was crazy how things just went from good to better to incredible and we you know ended up having some mad chart success which we never anticipated at the beginning yeah big chart success and and in the in the sort of mainstream pop charts as well like totally man i mean they still play like like, all cried out and stuff like that like on like daytime radio and stuff like that so it's kind of obviously permeated the uh national consciousness somewhat those tunes which so proud of obviously so, so tell me, how, how did how did Blonde kind of come about? Because you, you said there, and you jumped straight into a point at which, you know, your, your track got signed to Parlophone, which is obviously a massive sort of, I don't know, is that the starting point? Or was there a sort of period where you were kind of making music before that? And, and the other member of Blonde was Jacob, right? Jacob, so how, yeah. how, how did how did all of that kind of come about? How'd that come about? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been making, I've been making music since I was like really little. So like, you know, I used to fancy myself as like uh, an acoustic singer-songwriter when I was really little. And then I went to university and uh, found party, like raves and uh, dance music and yeah, fell in love, obviously. And um, I was running Eating Messy and Jake was sending me some tunes back and forth uh, for the label. We hit off like a friendship. Uh, I decided to work on some collabs together and then the collabs that came of that ended up sounding nothing like our individual projects so we were like let's just make a new alias to put these these couple of tracks out and then it just kind of exploded from there we, we weren't actually anticipating to do a whole project with it because 
when we wrote I Loved You, we hadn't actually met face to face yet. This all our correspondence had been online and like sending logic projects back and forth and stuff like that. So there was this weird moment when we were like, Oh god, we're like in a duo now and we haven't even like met each other. You know, it's like when you're like dating a girl or something like that, or you know, just been chatting over Tinder or whatever, and then it comes to actually having to meet them and you're like, Fuck, we better kick it off you better hit it off, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that that is mad though that you hadn't met. So at what point did you meet for the first time? So I, coincidentally, I was living about 10 minutes down the road from his mum's house in Bristol because he was in Leeds at university. And we just, um, yeah, he came home, I think for summer or something like that. And we went and met at a pub, uh, shared a few lagers. He was wearing a red carnation, obviously, so I could spot him. And then, um, yeah, like it, was, it wasn't awkward at all because we were pretty tight already. Like we knew a lot about each other from chatting online and stuff, but... It is, uh, this is one thing I always say to people who ask me about, um, you know, production and kind of like getting involved and kind of making something. Like, I'm a big fan of collaboration. And um, I, even back then, I was always looking for people to collaborate with and, and as I am now as well. And I think that's what was so perfect about Blonde. It was like the meeting of our two our two like skill sets made this perfect project. And so like that from essentially not knowing each other and then you meet for the first time and then you sort of embark on what is a massive journey together do you know like worldwide success and playing massive shows and getting mainstream uh hits that that is quite a quick trajectory to go on with somebody who was essentially a, a stranger you know not so long ago um what what was that like it, I mean, we actually kind of, after about, like, a few months of the project and after we'd actually met, obviously, uh, Jake was finishing uni at Leeds and we'd so he decided to come back to Bristol and we ended up actually moving in together. So we were living together, we were touring together, we were working together. And I think Jake would agree with me on this. That was probably a bit too much, <laughs> probably kind of... But we were just so excited about the prospects of the future and everything. We just thought, right, let's just kind of give our whole lives to this. Um, so had you had you had the sort of uh, initial successes at that stage and you sort of were like, okay, well, this is something we should yeah, we can work on here. It, it was like, right, okay, there's obviously a hunger for this and people like what they're hearing. Let's turn on the taps, so to speak. So, right, you move in together because I can see that being so intense, you know, and, and the speed at which a relationship, relationships evolve over time, trust, everything evolves over time and experience and to sort of, go there so quickly i can see how intense that could get yeah know? i mean you know like it, on the flip side of that as well it's also quite bonding you know all of a sudden you're like you're, you only really had each other for kind of like company and uh, when you're on the road and stuff like that so you make those bonds really quickly um because it's all accelerated but yeah at the same time it kind of doesn't leave a lot of space for much else so it was um it was something we did and I'm glad we, I'm really glad we did it because we made the best of a great situation. But um, like, like anything, you know, there can, be, there can be negative sides to kind of like being on each other's toes the whole time and like every creative relationship or any kind of relationship, you know, you're not going to agree on absolutely everything. But it's just about how you traverse that. How quick was the rise? 
So it was. So I loved you. Uh, came out. I can't remember the dates. You know, I'm getting. I'm getting on a bit. My memory's going. But um, it was about yeah, probably like 2012 or something. And then um, that came out and started. Did really well. I got to about number. I think it got number eight or something. And then we came out with um, all cried out. Probably about several months afterwards. And that took about a few months until that hit, hit number three in the UK charts. And so if that gives you an idea, pretty much the whole kind of growth of it happened in the space of probably about eight months or something like that from kind of, you know, pre I loved you to post all cried out. So it gives you an idea of quite how crazy it was. And then all of a sudden we were on the road the whole time. And yeah, it kind of just uprooted us really from our normal or seemingly normal, normal lives. I think there'll probably be a lot of people listening to who are kind of, uh, making music yeah. and releasing onto a smaller label and stuff like that and I think to them and to me it seems like more often than not there's a lot of like releasing on smaller labels kind of growing in that way and then a major will pick you up and then probably clean clean things up a bit and possibly even wipe the stuff that was done before that and then sort of go from there but it just seems so quick with you like how did you get involved with the major label setup so fast well one thing i would say about that is i mean it was like great and exciting but i don't actually think that is the best route the one that we took i mean obviously there were amazing things came of it but i think you can you know when when you have such a meteoric rise sometimes it can mean that you're going to have quite a drastic fall too. Easy come, easy go, yeah. Exactly, and there's a lot of expectation as well. Um, and you haven't really cemented a fan base. So I think, you know, people who might be listening who are kind of like doing tracks on smaller labels and kind of like really building building some back catalogue and a brand almost, you know, about who who they are and what they speak for. I think that is, for longevity's sake, that is probably the preferential model. Um, so that's something I definitely learned from it. But um, yeah, we so the way we got involved with Parlophone was uh, our manager who picked us up very early on, he, he was um, working with someone on another record who was at Parlophone. So he had like a direct in to show him these records and and yeah, and that was it really. They heard it and loved it and, and signed us on uh, like quite a long-term deal. And um, then we were part of the family. So after one track, your manager picked you up and then, and then it went from there? Yeah, I mean, we had like a lot of other tracks. We, so we were sat on a lot of demos and a lot of things. So, and the label heard, you know, about like six or seven records. They didn't just hear I loved you or whatever when they signed us. So they had a whole they had a whole plan for you know release strategy for all of these records. It's really interesting you say that uh, to get that sort of insight into sort of how it works and to get kind of your thoughts on what's the best way. Do you know? Because I think a lot of artists that day is kind of gone when you absolutely need a major. I, I, I totally agree with you, man. And I also think, you know, a lot of people have um, aspirations to have stuff released on majors and stuff. But one thing I'm noticing quite a lot now, because I also work as a, an A&R for Perfect Havoc Records, and they're like an independent label. 
Um, but they've, you know, they've done like uh, Joel Corey and all those kind of records recently and PS1 and stuff that are doing really well in the charts at the moment. But what's happened is they've signed these records, worked them really well at the beginning, and then majors have swooped in and kind of, you know, wanted want to be part of those records and stuff and do like licensing things and stuff with them. Um, so I would even say like that's that's probably an even better way to getting to that goal is going through like really strong independent labels who are going to help really nurture what you're doing at the beginning, and then when the time comes, then you can kind of really look at you know go into those bigger major labels maybe how much freedom did you lose the moment you join a, a setup like that i mean I, I think from the outset someone would imagine that the moment you get picked up with like a label and you become part of that setup that um the input i don't know there's a loss of creative freedom sometimes and the input as to the direction the decisions of, on your project sometimes i know i presume every deal is different but how was it like how much freedom did you lose on your project? Well, I think, yeah, a lot of that depends like on a broader scope for like, you know, people who might be thinking about doing the same thing. Like it depends very much on the deal that you sign. We signed a deal which kind of tied us in for quite a lot of time, which meant that, you know, they were invested us over, over a long period of time. So they'd be putting more effort into us, but it also means that you're somewhat subservient to their demands as well and and what their demands tend to be is especially if you're coming off the back of something that was a hit they want you to recreate that and they want they they don't really they're not really worried too much in the creative development they're more interested in you know the commercially commercial viability of it and therefore they want you to re recreate that same goal that you you know created before so that is leading on to you know why I kind of stopped doing blonde and everything that was one of the main reasons why I did was because I just like it's been about six seven years or something that I was doing blonde and in that amount of time your, your tastes change you know everything changes your kind of interests change and you know the deal that I was in uh, for blonde was not allowing me to kind of explore that and make the most of that so yeah, you're you are right. You you are quite um, like hamstrung by it, you know. Do you sort of feel trapped in that way? Because something that you built with an idea in mind, the moment you enter that, it almost isn't yours anymore. That's it. I mean, when there's there's loads of vested there's loads of vested interests, you know, when you um, when you start having commercial success, whether that's like management, uh, record labels, agents, all these different people who are involved and. A lot of the time, you know, they they work, they work to help you achieve what you're trying to achieve, and and so did mine. They were they're absolutely fantastic. But you have to also remember that, you know, at the end of the day, their involvement is to try and make as much money as possible. And if your interests are just to make money, then by all means follow that follow that that way of working. But if your interests are actually also to be kind of have creative license and to kind of explore things that you want to explore and really, really push things, then yeah, you need to kind of bear that in mind. So how did that deal end up? Did you end up um, seeing out the remainder of that, that um, deal with, with Blonde and Parlophone? <laughs> so Blonde, uh, Blonde I, I believe is gonna have a, a, like a 2.0 where, where it's gonna probably be just, just Jake. You know, we're like 
we're really good friends still and he understood why i wanted to leave and stuff and um, yeah so what 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 ha- what happened there um because i wasn't really sure was there an official sort of like we're we're breaking up type thing yeah not particularly i mean there might be some kind of statement later on down the line but it's just um we just had a very frank conversation and kind of like what we both wanted to achieve and do and and then i kind of what i wanted to do was you know like i was writing demos for blonde none of them were quite right for what blonde is and i was like i had a lot of faith in them so i was like i want to you know i want to kind of see these through and um so yeah, that's so I kind of said to Jake, you know, I didn't want to do Blonde anymore. It was a bloody hard decision, obviously, because it's, you know, been a huge part of my life. But um, I definitely feel it's the right decision. And hopefully, you know I, know, I know Jake's been working on new bits for Blonde as well. So there'll be there'll be more music for the Blonde fans that is going to be in the same ilk as the old records and stuff, which would be wicked. But it was just my time to, my time to fly the nest, really. How long did it take you to come to to actually come to terms with that decision yourself before you bu- bit the bullet and and left. Yeah, about a year and a half, I'd say. There's about a year and a half of umming and ahhing on it. Um, because also, you know, you, you like every creative person, you have you have like a, impo- a bit of imposter syndrome. Sometimes you're like, what if these tracks that I'm really backing that I want to do on my own? What if they're not actually any good? And I you know I kind of leave blonde and I fall flat on my face, kind of thing. But you gotta just you just gotta brush those off because otherwise you'll never really grow if you just listen to that little voice in your head. And I'm I'm really glad I did because they've been so well received so far. You know, it's it, it was a tough decision to make, but definitely the right one. And so, how did that all work out with with the deal um, and Parlophone? Was there a sort of financial element involved, or how was that break? How did it happen? No, I mean Jake still um, Jake will still be part of uh, any any you know any blonde deals that have, that have been made in the past and stuff like that mm. um so that's kind of how that works but it's kind of just there's there's always a clause in a contract which is like leaving party clause and so like i don't know if you're in a boy band or something like that and one of the the guys of the boy band decides to leave it's the same kind of it's the same kind of clause that would be referred to yeah. so it wasn't actually too difficult because labels have had to deal with things like that plenty of times before yeah. but um yeah it's um fair play man it's a it's a ballsy move like when something when something is going that well and it's perceived to the outsider as being super successful but inside you know it's not quite you that's such a difficult thing to to battle with inside your own head isn't it i think it's the most important thing for me now it's like you know I mean, success is fan bloody tastic, and we all want more of it. But you know, feeling that you you know you you're, you're creatively be, being able to do what you want and be who you want to be is just like worth its weight in gold. It's interesting though because you experienced the success. Like young younger you, if you had been told that you would do what you did with Blonde, probably would have been jumped at it and would have been like, you know. Uh, super like not surprised but that's what you've always wanted as such at that time um and then you experienced it and so now you're coming at it with a completely different like set of knowledge as such i guess yeah exactly it's like 
it's like it's it took the kind of however many years I was in blonde to come to that conclusion. Do you know what I mean? Um, and like I said, like you know, the the high rise can lead lead to a high fall, and we, you know, we released a couple of bits after um, after um, nothing like this that we did with Craig David, and they were doing fantastic. The records were doing great, but they weren't doing as well as maybe like All Cried Out and I Loved You. And so all of a sudden you start kind of like feeling this weight on your shoulders and you're kind of like, you know, chasing those stats a bit and chasing those accolades. And I don't know, I just, re- I think I just realized that I was just like, I don't really, that's not really what I'm looking to do is to just chase, chasing streams or chasing kind of chart positions. I mean, don't get me wrong, if it happens along the way, fantastic. But when everything becomes geared around that, it, it, it can, um, yeah, it can like negatively impact you a lot. What was it like making music with that on your mind? Because to, to the outsider, to me, it almost seems like you'd start to second guess everything you're making and you go, is that really good? Or will that, you know, have the chart success of of whatever? And, and so the creative process must just be, it, it must like, it must just be difficult to deal with. Well, you're not just dealing with the whole kind of like second guessing the quality. You're also dealing with your second guessing, right? Is this, this sounds great, but does it sound like blonde? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and if and if you don't, um, if it doesn't fit the bill, it could be the best record. You know, it could be an absolute smash, but if it doesn't fit the kind of identity of of blonde's sonics like sounds, then it's push it aside and back to the drawing board so that was hard yeah and you mentioned at the start that like the sort of more maybe traditional way of doing things is like starting an independent label is like building a fan base and then progressing and, and you mentioned the you know building a fan base in particular did you feel that like was that i don't know was that a point for you was it lacking with blonde is it something that you felt when you were going into it um because the success was massive and I obviously know I've been to been to your gigs and you know you sell you sold tickets do you know yeah um, yeah but yeah I don't know something that you obviously mentioned that you know you need to build that fan base did you find that maybe mm. the fan base they were I don't know it, it wasn't like solid is it was that something that was lacking there <laughs> I, what I what I actually felt was that because our songs had like such big success before we'd done that initial building of what the project was and who we were um the songs kind of like outshone the project so it meant that like you know i mean you you meant that you could uh go to a go somewhere and tell say oh yeah i do this project called blonde and they'd be like oh cool well i know any of your songs and then you'll 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 tell them about one of them and they'll be like oh my god i know that song it's on my playlist or whatever and it's like And I think that's what happens if you have the success before you've really built the foundations. It's like the songs might might really fucking shine, but if if you haven't done the the bit before, you know it's gonna it's gonna be a lot harder to carry across with all the future things that you do. Yeah, I think I think I can see that. You're right in terms of a lot of fandom and fans of artists. They they like the music and then they they become fans of people do you know and, and they and they want to see what they're doing and in in sort of celebrity culture they want to see what they eat and who they date and all this kind of stuff so i i, I completely get that as such so did, was it kind of like you felt that 
like yeah that this the substance wasn't there as such people knew you and you were hitting numbers and stuff but yet like you weren't sort of getting people who'd come up and be like oh my god like i know you and i follow you and everything you're doing you know exactly it's really weird actually we went to like asia a few times did tours there and i don't know if it's something about just like celebrity culture out there but every like when we turned up to gigs we got like swamped and like people like bringing us presents and stuff like that and but back in the uk that would like that would never that never really happen some people would take selfies and stuff but it was usually only once you were walking away from the dj booth because they'd yeah. just seen you dj and yeah. you know what i mean yeah. Yeah. but like so i think there is a bit of a it wasn't like that necessarily for us in asia and stuff but um yeah i definitely feel like the uk audience to really kind of embrace an act that yeah. you, you need to be you need to really kind of put some effort in there so did they did they actually recognize you guys in yeah Asia? yeah i mean it's probably because we were like the only two white guys white. walking down the street <laughs> yeah. as well but you know that, that's probably a part of it still though like that you know what that is that is mad the concept of that is mad though i know that, right that, that you guys went to asia and they were swarming you around like that must have been so weird it's crazy because you kind of that's when you begin to realize like oh this does actually carry a little bit further than my own little kind of area or whatever i mean it's amazing when something does well in the uk like or you know europe even but when you when you see it's far it's been as far reaching as asia you're just like it's quite hard to compute was there a lot was there a lot of that was there sort of you sort of hear people talk of like imposter syndrome sometimes when yeah. they get super successful um, in in a quick space of time, but even even not so, even if it takes a while. But once you get there, you're sort of surrounded and you're sat in a room with, I don't know, Liam Gallagher. You're like, I, mm. what, what am I doing here? And, and in your case, you go mm. to Asia and you're getting swarmed yeah. and people are giving you presents. Was there a lot of that throughout that time? Yeah, of course, man. And and also, people don't tell... I mean, when you look on people's Instagrams and you see all the touring and stuff, if you see, like, the party shots popping the champagne bottles or, you know, the, like, shots from the booth and stuff, which is the best bit. But that is usually only about two hours of the... Two hours of the, the actual trip. Like, 90% of it is you, like, sleeping on planes, getting about two hours in a hotel until you've got to get to the next, the next plane, especially on the Asia tours. So there was a lot of time for kind of like, you know, for like... Reflecting. Feel it, reflecting and kind of like, you know, being uncomfortable and stuff like that. So yeah. yeah, people do kind of just see the touring as like all this amazing thing, but it's actually pretty, pretty grueling as well. Was there a mo was there like a standout moment for you or a few standout moments like throughout that time with Blonde? that you sort of stood there and was like, wow, this is mad, like, this is crazy. Yeah, probably, I mean, for me, like, Glastonbury's just, like, the pinnacle for me. I've been going for quite quite some time, and it's just, yeah, an institution. And when we got to play, like, on the biggest dance stages there, and then Craig David came on to perform the song with us and stuff like that, that was a moment when I looked around and I was like, you know this is actually pretty mad. I'm on stage with Craig David playing at Glastonbury Festival. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was a moment. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is as well, looking out onto that stage, I always find uh, when I'm watching, like, say, you know, when I'm at a gig or, or especially like Glastonbury and especially like 
watching arena kind of main stage glossary sets and arena tours and all this kind of stuff um the sort of privilege and i i don't know i always wonder if the artist and the performer up there knows how crazy the situation they're in is because what they're seeing looking out into a sea of people at glastonbury which is one of the biggest and best festivals in the world that that's a privilege that not that many people on the planet will ever get to experience do you know what like there were moments when like i said the glastonbury one i think that dawned on me just because of how special glastonbury is to me but like you do kind of start going through the paces like when you when you when you are doing like three dj like sets a week and you're going up and down the country or across europe and back and forth like it does become second nature and you know that you don't get the nerves before and stuff as well and it's like um yeah you do get like surprisingly comfortable with it and maybe you do somewhat kind of take it for granted a little bit it's like anything really mm. you know if you do something day in day out that's incredible you might take it for granted but um since obviously you know i, I left blonde and obviously being in um being in lockdown and stuff like that and there's no shows on i think everyone even all the djs who who've been touring a lot recently have had time like four months or whatever to properly reflect on how fucking special their jobs are and everyone's raring to go again now so yeah i think you do need to step back from it ever so often just to realize was it when you decided to leave blonde was that was that was that a massive part that you were going to miss like that the touring or was it something you were happy to give up uh, i mean a bit of both really i um i was kind of glad for the rest because you know a lot of partying a lot of traveling but at the, at the same time i was like even if i do start a new project you know i wanted to do it differently this time as well so kind of like build it some more and i knew that i wasn't going to be touring on that scale any any time you know in the immediate future yeah. so i knew i was giving that up but at the same time i wanted to kind of you know i wasn't getting to play the kind of music that i love as well as much so that kind of took a little bit of the joy away from it too yeah. so i was like i'd rather do smaller shows or or just wait a little bit longer to do bigger shows and be playing the music that i want to support as opposed to kind of playing what's expected because it's a blonde set you know do you ever do you ever miss it is it something you ever think oh i'd love just to have that opportunity again oh my god yeah definitely definitely i think i'd i'd be lying if i said i didn't but um i don't know sometimes i feel like you know you got to um you got to keep moving forward and i feel like i feel like those experiences i've had have definitely informed my decision to kind of you know to move to move forward so I'm not too I'm not too hung up about it. But also you've you've done it now. Exactly. Know? Done it and I've I've experienced all the all the highs and the lows of it and um yeah. To me, who's never experienced a performing on that scale, it I, I see it as such like a, a luxury to experience that. Um and I, I can only ever equate it to you know if you're djing in a club like a ti on a tiny scale and you get like that you know there's so many gigs you play if you're a dj so many terrible gigs right and so many times you're pandering to the crowd but then there's a couple of nights that 
you get a crowd who's into it and it's not even that big but it's a small crowd but they're into it those are my favorite shows actually like i mean i couldn't i couldn't really reel them off to you because you know i, I was probably quite half cut at the time but um like those were some of my favorite moments uh, as blonde they weren't necessarily the big like festivals or the or the huge kind of like arenas or anything like that it was those small shows where you can literally see you can literally see the audience up close and maybe like 300 capacity or something because i feel like that's like the perfect size room to kind of get every everyone's kind of together in that moment when it's like really massive you see like pockets of people but like when it's like a 300 capacity club there's a it's a real yeah it's a real environment was there a lot of partying throughout that time yeah i mean there was there was um more so since to be fair but um but i it was kind of like just drinking riders like someone was going to come at the end of the show and snatch it out of your hand do you know what i mean it was like it got a bit excessive but very lucky to bring like you know pals along with us and stuff like that was it I know a lot of people kind of get to a point where there's actually so much partying that it's like not it, the reason that it calms down is because it's not actually sustainable. Did it did it kind of hit that level for you? Yeah, I mean yeah, I mean let's let's be honest like if you're if you're DJing like three times a week and you're drinking or whatever at every single one of those parties you're going to burn out and uh so unless you have that self-discipline innate in you then you know there's going to come a point where you do burn out and i know a lot of people you know dj friends and stuff like that who yeah i've had to take a step away from from doing as many shows for that exact reason because it's the thing you got to remember is you're like turning up to a show uh where like it's these people who are there it's their one night of the week or it's their you know big night out and you've just like got off a train that you've been on for like four, like three hours or something like that, feeling like shit. And you're going into this like really heightened kind of like social intense kind of party environment. And sometimes you feel like you need a little bit of the Dutch courage or something like that, just to kind of get you in the same mode as everyone else, you know? Also so you can kind of like, cause you want to exude the kind of positivity and the energy to the crowd as well so that they can enjoy it so it is a hard thing to do to do shows totally sober for that exact reason and i know why a lot of people do struggle with that but i think if you are touring to that degree just a little note for anyone who's watching who does end up kind of like touring all the time just take it easy (laughs) is that i mean did you struggle with it is that did it get to a point where it was like a turning point for you or were you always okay with it (laughs) yeah 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 i mean i've got a very addictive personality as well and i know well i think a lot of creatives do i think it's almost like a trait that comes with the comes with the territory so there are little mo there are little watershed moments where you're just kind of like you know i can't keep i can't keep going at this pace um and then also you know everything's like you get like big bougie riders with whatever alcohol you want for free at every single gig you know it's literally sat there like a whole bottle of whatever you want so to kind of to turn up and be like no nah, i'm gonna have a, i'm gonna take it slow tonight is actually quite a lot more difficult than than you might think i i so i so know what you mean though in terms of 
like that's their one night of the week the night they yeah. book you and you guys yeah. have just come off a, a, a string of, of shows you're probably hung over and also totally. it does it does reflect when when a promoter books an artist their demeanor to, to them and to the crowd and stuff it does reflect it reflects on the artist and it reflects on yeah. whether they would whether you would want to work with them again or book them again or how pleasant they are do you know totally man totally yeah I think and that's always been a big thing for me like you know I, lo I love working with people and I'm a real people person so I like to I like to interact with everyone and I like to give everyone my best in those moments so yeah there's that constant battle between the two between looking after yourself and then also wanting to, to kind of please everyone really I, I have to say though like it's worth saying that when when I booked you when we when I we had you over in Galway all yeah. those years ago. Yeah. Um, we had kind of we booked like loads of DJs. We had loads of DJs over that that run that we did that residency, and you and Jacob like definitely stood out as the nicest guys we had booked. Oh, and I'm not mate. I'm not just saying that. Like it 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 stuck with us. It always stuck with us. It's how. You know, all those years later, I remembered you. I, straight away, I was like, yeah, like, we, we oh, met mate. before and stuff, do you know? Yeah, um, no, I appreciate that, man. I mean, that's kind of, that's really lovely to hear because that's, yeah, that's just what, just what I want, really. And, you know, we got on so well with you as well. Like, it's kind of goes both ways, really. And I, I, I remember, actually, because obviously you guys and, and a touring artist, every time they get to a, a, a gig and a location, yeah. there's local people there all here, like, you know, hit me up on Facebook and they're trying to keep in touch whether they're sending yeah. me music so so there was an equivalent and I'm I was always hyper aware of that and I'm hyper aware of that there's there's always yeah. a, there's an equivalent of you times literally 10,000 for every location that a DJ goes do you know <laughs> um, mm. but I remember with with you guys like I you guys were wearing and I remember this vividly you were wearing um, in-ears basically <laughs> the protect yeah. the protected your ears and at the time I was like um, oh, you know, I, I want to invest in a pair because my ears were just not hacking it. And um, after afterwards, like I hit you up on on Facebook. I'm not, I can't mm. remember if it was you or Jake. I was like, listen, yeah. you, you had in ears. Like, what did you get? Sent me back like the the exact in ears you had and like how how to get them and all this shit. I was like, fair play. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of touring DJs, they wouldn't have the time in their day to do that or to give someone you've met once that time and it just it was a very good reflection on you guys do you know um, well, and it all stuck with me oh that i appreciate that man i think it feeds into a, a, a greater kind of like ideal that i have about like working in music as well it's like you know you give everyone your best and you give everyone as much like respect and attention as as you'd want because also like there's been so many times when i've met people who have been sometimes at the beginning of their journey in the industry and I've been lovely with them and we've like hit, hit off a rapport and then later on down the line they've kind of like climbed up the tree and like they're doing really well and you know you, you can I mean not just for like self-benefit that you should do that you should you should be nice to everyone anyway but it's it's also you never know you never know what the future might hold for you guys and look here we are on a podcast now we're chatting and stuff all because we kept that relationship going so i think it's a, a big part of being part of this industry 
Is it weird to see that when you you know someone throughout all stages of their careers and you you see a, a definitely a drastic change in their personality with the level of success that they achieve? Is that like, is it weird to see? And how do you even handle that? Like, well, I mean, not going to name any names or anything like that, but I've yeah. seen a few people who have you know who have kind of just like being consumed by uh, an inflated ego and stuff like that as a direct result of things. But I th like nothing is forever necessarily. Success is never really forever unless you're like Ed Sheeran or one of these lot. But um, so you gotta be, you gotta be humble in those situations. Otherwise it's just gonna come around to bite you in the ass later on. But and I think a lot of people do fall victim to that. But luckily, I always try and surround myself with people who, who are similar to myself in that regard. So, you know, most of my friends, when I see them do when I see them doing well, they're extremely humble about it. Yeah. Yeah. You need people to keep you in check, don't you? Keep you you do, man. Yeah. Whether that's your friends or your family or whatever. I actually don't judge the people that do change and that do turn into... Nah. You know, and, and the reason I don't and... and when you're living the life that you live as a successful touring artist and you arrive to all these different locations and people want to meet you, they want, like mm. you're, you're the main event, do you know? And yeah. you arrive in Asia and people are giving you presents and they want photos and selfies. Like, I don't know what that's like, but I can only imagine what that does to your mentality. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I definitely don't judge, I definitely don't judge them because I'd like to think that I would stay grounded. You know, I would like to think that, but who who knows, do you know? Like success can do crazy, crazy things and it can sort of alter your reality, you know, and, and, and your perception of yourself. Yeah, a hundred percent. No, it can, it can definitely do that. And I think a little bit of, you know, how we were talking about imposter syndrome and things like that, that loads of people suffer from. I think sometimes that can help almost a little bit keep your ego in check as well. Just to remember, I mean, obviously if it, beco if it becomes too much, then it can have a real negative impact on you. But, you know, it's just, it's just remembering that you're, you're actually, even though you might be talented, you're actually very lucky to be where you are and to be traveling to all these beautiful countries and meeting all these incredible people. Was it, um, was it weird getting used to like taking selfies and and becoming the focus of like I said the main event and becoming almost cele like celebrity like yeah I mean you know I had like my little kind of paste up my little my, my little go to smile which I just like you know <laughs> straight in with that one I've, I've perfected it so like literally <laughs> if you look at any any selfies of me with blonde fans I've got the exact same smile <laughs> on my face in every single one it's like uncanny the forced smile when you are hungover and you've got that but you need to look good for a, for a selfie there you go yeah it's the only way <laughs> it is it, it is weird I, I, can't, I can't even relate but like I say be, walking into somewhere and people sort of wanting selfies and stuff like that it's a uh, it's a it's a crazy feeling i can i can only imagine i mean i can only imagine what it's like for people who are like you know um so famous to the point where like you know trying to go to the shops or something like that i mean we only get it we only really got it ever when we were going to gigs and things like that but you know to be that famous where you, you can't even go to like sainsbury's or whatever and get your your shopping yeah without someone stopping you that would be difficult unless you're in asia by the sounds of it then you yeah, get <laughs> yeah. 
Then I'll get absolutely mobbed at the local market, yeah. What what presents did they give you out of interest? Uh, one of them did like, um, they had like the artwork for nothing like this. And this was in South Korea and they'd like, they'd edited it so that it had our faces on it. And then also the, um, all the text was in Korean. So it's it actually, it actually really cute. And then there was like, it's like a scarf or something from someone. It was really weird things, but I think it's a cultural thing yeah. where they like, yeah. you know, bring bring you presents and stuff. So it's it's really sweet. I've still got all the the gifts. I was that they gonna gave say, us. I was gonna say, what do you do with all of that? Like, do you actually put it in your suitcase and bring it home? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they're not like on my mantelpiece or anything <laughs> like that. But they're, uh, you know, they're they're in a box, save for a rainy day to show the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it makes you think, like a. a, a a pop star or whatever they're getting constant presents like i just there's no way that they end up anywhere you know in their suitcase they must have like a storage unit or something where they just like keep them all yeah, yeah. Do you know what i mean I, I can't imagine they have enough space in the houses for it all in, in in asia did you find actually that i sort of I've, I've heard that the crowds and you mentioned the cultural difference are a lot more like it's almost a bit more respectful so they're kind of not as mad they almost listen instead of like get involved did you find that dude well actually talking about this show that we did in south korea they're absolutely awesome they're lovely people but they um the way like we we did this like set in this about 300 capacity room and everyone was kind of they were dancing but it's like mainly just like all eyes forward you know not not like people dancing in little you know groups and stuff mm. all eyes forward watching at your every single move and there was even a moment where we did like a drop and like people started clapping <laughs> it was like well done well done and i was like i was just like what this is so bizarre <laughs> but yeah it's yeah i don't i don't like it's just obviously a cultural thing but i don't, I don't yeah. get i don't get and especially with dance music it just doesn't doesn't compute does it well, I, I kind of prefer it when everyone gets a bit lost, you know, in, in what you're doing and like just having fun with their friends and stuff. But at the same time, it was quite it was quite sweet, you know, having that their undivided attention on us to that to that degree. Did you did you tour all over the world, I presume? Yeah, everywhere except for um, Australia, actually, really, which right. I found really surprising because, you know, our tracks did really well in Australia and, you know, the UK and Ireland and like a lot of European stuff usually works, does quite well out there, but we just never seem to make it out. Have you, like, do you know how many countries and cities you've visited? Oh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't list them off to you, but it's, it's a lot, you know, we've played places in like Europe. Um, Where's the weirdest? The weirdest was, well, the, the, one of the surrealists was in Dubai, which was, um, they, ha they had this, um, like wrist, so you get a wristband and you get as much alcohol as you want for the night. It's like 30 quid or something for this wristband. And, um, but because of the laws they've got out there, they can't, they can't be seen to be promoting alcohol, alcohol use. So even though they've got this wristband deal where everyone gets as pissed as farts if they want to on whatever, I was, when we was DJing, I wasn't allowed to take um, a beer or anything on the stage with me because that was seen as promoting al drinking alcohol. So I had to drink like vodka tonic out of a water, like an Evian water bottle for the whole, for the in whole the booth. set. Yeah, in the booth, in the booth. And it was just, it, that was just a bit, that was just a bit of a, an old culture kind of thing. You know, 
seeing everyone in the crowd absolutely hammered and I'm there with this Evian Hiding. bottle. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, there, was there any like particularly weird gigs that spring to mind? Because you obviously played so many. There was one uh, where we were playing at this um, ski festival and um, they had this like big decking thing that the, the dance floor was on. And people were going so crazy, like jumping up and down, that the decking fell through. And like, I found it absolutely hilarious, but then I later on found out two people broke their legs. And like, it was just like, there's about like, there's about like 15, 16 people down this, like in this hole in the, in the decking. What do you do? Um, do you just keep playing? Like, <laughs> well, actually we kept on playing and, and then they, they ended up telling us that we had to turn off the music. Cause, um, there was another time in the festival when I was there for the weekend with a few pals and we were playing on the Saturday and at a festival your, your phone runs out of battery pretty quickly so I was like right when I'm DJing I'm going to plug my phone charger in get some juice while I'm having a, having a spin plugged it into this quite full multi-plug thing and it exploded in my hand all the music, all the sound went off all the lights went off in this tent People, I, I, I like, had a near-death experience. I was like shaking like a leaf because yeah. I thought I was nearly died, and people started booing. So oh. not only had I, not only had I just had a near-death experience, I was getting booed for it as well. What um, do you even do? Did the, I, I presume the set didn't even happen then? Well, they managed to get up and running again in a, in, a, in like about five minutes or something. So it wasn't too bad, but. After that, I was I was just I was done. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more in at the like I find with DJ sets and electronic sets in general, so yeah. much can go wrong to computer error that like I'm surprised it doesn't happen happen more often. You know. <laughs> well, the the usual one that happens is when you're doing the changeover with like one DJ to the next, um, and because everyone always has the same bloody USBs someone takes out your USB to put in their one yeah. and then, it, and then it, the CDJ does this auto loop thing and it always like loops it in a really horrible place. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. then like, you're there trying to kind of like mix in a tune yeah. with this horrible loop. So that, that happens all the time, like as a technical difficulty, but yeah. I always find though, like, cause often in the smaller gigs that you play, you know, if, uh, if the mixer or whatever broke or one of the CDJs broke in a festival, they could probably sort it out. They've got other ones lying around and stuff. But in some smaller shows, like they don't just have extra expensive kit lying around. So when it comes to you, like if, if, if the channel, if a channel broke or something that was key, that you absolutely essential breaks, you're kind of just like, what, what do you do? Yeah. Has it ever happened like that? Oh yeah, mate, all the time. Like a lot of these like clubs that you go to as well, especially the smaller ones, yeah, I mean, like I say, the smaller ones are usually the cooler ones anyway, but they don't have necessarily the budget to be spending on new DJMs and, you know, CDJs and stuff. So there's been so many times you get there and literally, like, the faders are fucked or, like, the, the, the you know, something's not working yeah. and you have to kind of just make do. But, like, you get, you get through it, but, like, sometimes it does, yeah, it's an occupational hazard. And it reflects badly on you then, do you know? No one thinks well, about it. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, the equivalent is turning up with all your own gear. And like, I love the fact that you can just turn up with some headphones and a, and a, and a couple of USBs, you know, how, makes um, things a hell of a lot easier. How much of a like, because there, there are many stories of um, DJs who would 
kind of just walk off you know if the sound wasn't right if the equipment wasn't right that would sort of kick up a fuss and to be fair like I say I try to be as non-judgmental as possible because I'm not in those positions but to be fair the sort of the, the sort of thought process behind it is they're getting paid a lot of money to, to be there and also there's a lot of eyes on them and, and if if the sound is wrong and their mixing is off or the the mixer is broken or the CJ is broken and, and that's off that will always reflect on them and the sort of reputational damage is on them and not on the on the festival as such and so you can see why why they would kick off but then on the, on the flip side you get some djs who are just super like just roll with yeah. it but like where yeah where do you sit on that spectrum well i, I mean you know you, you'll understand this like be you know being a promoter and stuff that like that there's like tech riders that are sent beforehand and you know it's like needs minimum this setup or you know this is the spec that we need and like i'd say probably about 50 percent of the time people just totally ignore <laughs> ignore that bit and it's like, i think as long as you can get through the set and you, and you feel like you you can like physically do what you're there to do then you just deal with it you know i've had so many situations where like the monitors are fucked or there aren't even any monitors in the booth and i've had to do all the mixing in my, my headphones or you know things like that and you just gotta suck it up really like like you said that you you've been paid a lot of money to be there people have turned up to see you like all you're doing i think by refusing to go on or anything like that it's probably a worse impression than you coming on and doing a couple of shoddy mixes do you know what i mean yeah yeah i get you i mean uh, there's there's one particular case i can think of where i was i was playing on a festival line of an um a DJ walked off mid set, like just, and he was on a main stage as well, and just kind of, kind of had had warned the promoter or some of the stage crew, like, look, if the sound doesn't, if someone doesn't fix that sound in the in the monitors, I'm I'm gonna walk, and then uh, and then did and walked off mid set, and someone else on the lineup just sort of jumped in and and carried on, um, yeah, and it kind of caused Jeez. this whole this whole thing, and and to be fair, it does it does happen, um, yeah. And I can see, I can see why. But have you ever had to do that? Basically, have you ever had to? Has there, has there ever come to a point where you're like, "Look, this is this is a joke." Like, uh, no. I mean, th there has been points where, like, before, like this, you know, where the setup's been like so awful that I've kind of like, you know, I, it, it's it's got to me, and I've been a bit pissed off or yeah. whatever. But I would never, I would never kind of like walk off or or do that really unless unless literally like i don't know a cj i mean i've even had it before when i've been djing and like there's two cdjs one of the cdjs has just come up with like a critical failure and they had to kind of like rush off to get a new cdj from like a club down the road what do you do well what i did was i just played tracks on the other cdj and then after, after every single track finished, like was about to finish, I had to do like a kind of like a reverby kind of like effect to, to, to like carry over some of the track, just so that when I got when I when I queued up the next one, I could bring it in like relatively seamlessly. But I, well, it wasn't seamless at all. But it's like, what else can you do? I mean, what is the alternative? That is bad. I mean, that is bad. That is bad. But you know, you just got to roll with the punches. I mean, that's what you're there for. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of other DJs, and I have this reoccurring dream where um, I'm DJing in a club, and I'm like, the track's running out on this CDJ, and I'm desperately looking for the next track to mix in, and then the music stops, 
and I think a lot of people like a lot of because you you know you've got to kind of like keep the the whole event rolling and I think that kind of has permeated my consciousness a little bit and uh, has fed into some of my dreams a lot of people who have said they've had this exact same dream as well I definitely get it and I think you don't strike me as someone who would storm off mid 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 set however the anxiety is still there whether you show it and you storm off or you just play it it's still it's still there do you know it's still exactly the same it's just about just a different way of coping with it <laughs> yeah no no I, I i get it i get i suppose and the way is i sort of I, I sort of relate to it is like in sort of premier league football at the at the highest level you know they're going if the grass isn't exactly level or isn't perfectly cut or the ball is a bit the odd shape stuff that makes minimal differences because now i get it there's millions and millions of pounds and stuff involved but in in some cases with djs and artists the same thing applies once you get to that level where there's that amount of money and eyes on you though those minimal things like matter do you know or they at least they should you know it's if you're playing in someone's living room then you know it doesn't matter yeah although i would say you know on that same kind of like metaphor you're using like if it's pissing it down with rain or it's chucking it down with snow on game day they've still got to crack on you know they've still got to go out and perform yeah no i, I agree and the best ones do no matter what exactly the, what the diversity yeah. is, you know um w- when you hit your mainstream success and it was like in, you were in the pop charts. Did you find yourselves yeah. like did you did you end up in the in the Baftas or the, or the Brits or did you end up at all these like mainstream events and stuff mixing like obviously you know Craig Dave and stuff but like <laughs> yeah did you find yourself we in de- that, a lot of that yeah so we DJ'd at like the Warner Brits after party like a couple of years uh, in the in a row which is really really quite surreal like you know go going into the urinal and then. There's Graham Norton sat next, sat, stood next to me. I was like, "What am I doing here? Like, this is so peculiar." And yeah, it was. It was. I think that night, Chic did a little. They did a, a little set as well. They did a little performance, and then Charlie XCX came on and did a performance to a room of about like 200 people, and we were DJing before all of this. So it was. It, it was pretty surreal. So I was going to say, like, you must, you must know and have met throughout your time a lot of people a lot of big names like mm. because if you get yeah. success as a dj that's one thing but when you cross into the mainstream world it's a new world isn't it <laughs> well that's it exactly exactly yeah you do cross paths with a lot of a lot of people like that so with what you're doing now and it's funny because when mm. when we sort of started the conversation it, and and i didn't know all that about blonde and about why you left and mm. all that kind of stuff but having followed you on social media and stuff like that and listened to your Pablo Bravas releases, it's so, I so could realize, even though I had never spoken to you, I so could realize that it was almost a case of you were just making what you want to make now. Do you know what I mean? There you go. Yeah. Um, Because it just, it just seemed that way and it wasn't, it's different to the blonde stuff. Um, So what, like, yeah, talk to me about, about that. I mean, where, What's the aim of the game with that? Do you want to sort of build that up to to sort of tour it and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean the ambition is to is the, to to be touring with it definitely. I mean at the moment, just because well, let's let's be honest, touring's kind of in limbo land at the moment. Yeah. But um, yeah, the focus is just on kind of like like I said earlier about building that 
that audience and building the music so people really know what Pablo Brava stands for. And um, But what I really want to do with this project is I kind of, I mean, house music's my, my first love and, uh, I, you know, it's, it's one of my favourites uh, in electronic music, but I'm trying to kind of... Um, keep like a sound across all of the records but while still kind of playing with a few other a few other genres and stuff as well so there's um there's a track that's out at the moment on armada that, I, that i've done recently called you and it's like more kind of like early breaks kind of influence yeah the tracks the tracks uh, your pablo bravo's tracks are they're all quite different Yes, yeah, exactly. I, I, the thing is, I wanted to do that from the beginning because I think if you, like I did with Blonde, like we did with Blonde, you know, all the tracks were very similar at the beginning. And so that was what became expected. Whereas I feel like if I do this, like, release here that's like that and a release here that's like somewhat different there and so on and so forth, that's what will become expected of the project. And people will know that that is... Does that hinder hinder growth though? Because... There's an there's an audience that are into track one, but then when you come in with a breakbeat banger, it's like that's a different audience, do you know? Totally, totally, and it's all about kind of like trying to still bridge those gaps a little bit with. Um, I mean, it's it's almost feeds a little bit into the way I do my DJing as well. Like sometimes if I'm playing a cr to a crowd that's more into a certain type of music. You don't, I don't want to just play exactly what they're expecting to hear because, I mean, what's the point in that? And you're not really kind of opening up people to new things. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I play one track for them, a track for me, a track for them, a track for me. You know, that's the way I kind of... I can still imprint what I'm trying to do and kind of show them my influences and what I love. But then at the same time, they're getting what they want as well. And I think that kind of feeds into a little bit of mentality around the Pablo project. It's like still doing all the stuff that I love and that people, other people will love. But at the same time, I'm still, I'm kind of opening up people hopefully to stuff that they hadn't really listened to before. You're, from your experiences with, with Blonde that was like we said on a major and, and mainstream, has that allowed you to sort of approach this um, in a way of like, learning how you can earn money and have uh, sort of income and a career in music without um, without like needing that setup, do you know? Because I think a lot of times a sort of a, a new artist will struggle to figure out how they'll make money from it, do you know? But really there is a there is a way to do it, like we've said, without going down the major route, but there's also a way to do it in just, keeping some element of independence but is that something you've learned to do and is that something you're doing now yeah it's i mean it's a really really tricky balance like making making money in music uh off, off like making music especially it's particularly difficult i mean you know in the age of streaming and stuff like that where there's you know not readily a lot of money to be generated for artists you've got to be quite clever in um in ways that you do do make money and a lot and a lot of it is generally from touring and stuff like that is is generally how you make the money that goes in your pocket um but yeah so i think by working with more independent labels and stuff you get better you get some better deals you you get to keep more of the the artist share of the the record and um so you might be making you might be like doing less records but you're getting a bigger chunk of that um 
And yeah, it's just about like assimilating to the new reality, really. Because like I said, with COVID and everything like that, there is no touring. So I think a lot of people, a lot of people are having to reevaluate, even the ones who have been successful touring artists up and up until lockdown happened. I think a lot of people are like, right, shit, this, I mean, I've just had my, my bread and butter like snatched out of my mouth. Uh, how am I gonna, how am I gonna, you know, keep making money while the world gets back to normal and is the is that keeping you afloat as such as i mean because is it getting you by well the thing is i mean i've got my the pablo project but then i also do so many other things i feel like you've got to be a jack of all trades really when it comes to to music so like i write for other people i produce for other people you know i, I top line so i sing i, I singing on Crooks' latest record, um, which is doing really well at the moment. I, um, but, like, it's just, like, you've got to... Whatever you feel like you can give, even if it's on other people's projects and stuff, you just got to you just got to be willing to do it. And then the money the money does come, but it's... Um, you've got to, like, invest in it first, really, because at the beginning, you know, before people really start taking you seriously and you've proven yourself, there's not much money to go about. But it's about having that perseverance to kind of really get past that moment and then people really start valuing your worth. I didn't know that, like, I, I, can't, I knew you that you were producing for other artists. I didn't, I didn't know you, you sang and, or any of that. Um, what, so what, what, um, what, who do you produce for? Like, is it pop music or what, what do you do there? Yeah, I mean, loads of different people, really. Like, um, I've done some bits with um, Kish before for like his for his stuff. Um, I also do. I can't. I can't name any names. I'm afraid, yeah. but I also do some ghost production as well, which yeah. I know is quite a controversial topic. But um, yeah, like like we like we said, like you know, if you've got to make you've got to make money to to it's, it's to controversial. But I think we'd also be. I mean, I would also be naive to say like i think everyone knows it happens you know what i mean i mean I, it's so, it's something i'm actually into like you know i think people should know how it all works do you know what i mean like it's it, it's there do you know i, I think we, there's no point everyone just going like dancing around it do you know what i mean and i don't shy away from talking about it because it's it's just the reality of of this industry and you know i don't think people yeah, I don't think people widely know much about it, but it's it's happening a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there's, a, like, you can make a good mm. living, right, off just making music for other people, basically. Yeah, you can. I mean, you know, if you put it this way, like, if you're making a record, if you're making records just for your own project, you can only release a certain amount of music a year, right? So, you know, you need, like, all labels have in their agreements, like, an exclusivity period, that goes before the release and after the release, whether that's like two months either side or one month either side. So, you know, if, if you're going on that metric, it's about six releases a year or something like that you can do under your own artist project. And that financially doesn't add up to a lot of money, especially if you're working with independent labels. Mm. So the only other way you can really bolster that is by working with other people on their releases, whether it's working collaboration or whether it's, you know, doing production for people and stuff. So um, it's just another way of getting more more work done, really. And how how does it work? Like, do you do you make the, the track and then sort of fish it off away and see if there's any takers, or do you get commissioned 
by somebody to make a track or how does it work uh, it works differently every time really you know it's kind of like it's kind of like something i just fell into really almost accidentally yeah um so um yeah it all, it all depends on what the kind of person is you know you're doing production for wants and requires and stuff like that so it's not really one size fits all but um yeah yeah and what about sort of pop music do you um because it's it's different isn't it recording vocals and recording instruments and stuff as opposed to making a a dance track is it is different it's a different skill in, in <laughs> definitely um i mean yeah how is that yeah i mean so i, I my background is I, you know, was playing in bands from quite a young age and stuff. So I play guitar and stuff. So I, I, I like to do like other stuff as well as electronic music. Um, but I've kind of recently, because I'm just putting so much attention into like developing, you know, my skills and stuff like that uh, around the Pablo project, I'm kind of trying to do less of that and more just focus on electronic music because. I want to be able, you know, like, otherwise I feel like I'm kind of dividing my attention a little bit and rather than kind of harnessing yeah. all of my, my um, yeah, my skills onto one thing. So um, I have done some other stuff for like pop acts stuff before, but it's been, um, it's been a while since I've done that. And you obviously mentioned your, your background there is from live act like being in a band and stuff and what what i know about you and what i said at the start of the, of the podcast was that obviously you run i presume still run and own um eat and messy right that the label and and youtube channel um so like yeah t t tell me about that how you got into it and because i, I kind of feel like eating messy was it a YouTube channel before it was a label or was it? Yeah, it was a YouTube channel. So uh, like first and foremost, and then like gradually we kind of decided it would be a good idea to do a label. But it, um, it was actually perfect because I, this was like the heyday of YouTube um, when pretty much everyone was going like for music, when everyone was going online to kind of listen to like um selected majestic the casual sound you need the sound you need and eating messy that and was stuff a, like that. that whole thing was a massive boom wasn't it <laughs> it was absolutely huge especially like amongst amongst like uni students and stuff yeah and we kind of really capitalized on that because we you know we did these like touring shows where we got loads of people from the channel uh to come on up come play on these shows that we did up and down the country and it was it was incredible um and we, yeah, it was a it was a huge part of the blonde story as well. That's you know how we kind of, that's how we put out our first few records and stuff like that was by promoting the money and messy. But um, the way it all started was I just I literally just started like a, a YouTube playlist um, just for my own listening pleasure, and um, a lot of the tunes that I'd found on SoundCloud and around the place weren't on there. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just upload them. I'll just upload them myself and add them to my playlist. And then people found them and, you know, it just became a phenomenon, like, accidentally. But it was, like, the best accident I could have ever have, ever have done because it gave me a platform as a DJ, but then also gave me a platform to help promote not just my own music, but other people's music and stuff. And it was just, yeah, it was just incredible. As a music lover, that's, like, it's the dream, isn't it, really? It's the absolute dream, definitely. Like, you know, working with you know 
getting to kind of chat directly with all these artists that we were really looking up to and stuff like that and kind of like being part of that whole journey was so cool and those videos like the views are mad like yeah some of them anyways what's what do you know what your highest viewed video is I can't remember how like how many it's on, but I know it's a Disclosure record. I know it's like one of the first. Remember, Disclosure did that EP, like um, I think they did it on Greco Roman Records, like yeah. before they did the album and stuff. It was a track off that EP. I think it was Tenderly or something. But yeah, it's got it's like in the tens of millions. Yeah, it's in tens of millions. Yeah. Like, yeah. And do you like? Can you monetize that? You can, but you know what we did because it's other people's music at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. But um, we kind of did this like do this form of monetization where like the labels put in request on the video once it's uploaded, and it's kind of like we take a little bit of the revenue share, but then the majority of the revenue share goes back to the label and the artist. So it's kind of like it's mutually beneficial for everyone, mm. and um, you know we're we're at the end of the day. Fled, you know, struggling artists as well. So we see things very much from the artist perspective. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, they were getting their fair share of any revenue that came from the, the streams. Yeah, but and everyone wins though because it's a massive promo tool. Like getting on certain YouTube channels, it made it made some artists YouTube channels. Big time, big time. I, I kind of feel like Kygo was made mm. from. The sound you need, or one of those. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. It was all that kind of like that whole trap house thing. Yeah, and Matoma was, and all those tropical, and then it went into yeah. like the sort of sax house, like Klingand and all them. That yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole wave was all from that whole YouTube music channel thing. Totally, know? and it absolutely yeah. it absolutely took off. I'm trying to. So who who from sort of the eaten messy days, like the early days, has like gone on to to progress? Like who's a sort of um, what what would you call it? Who's who's come through the ranks at Eaton Messi? Okay, well I'll give you I'll get got a good example for this because we did our first ever live show in Bristol, which is where we were living at the time, and this was like really early days. But um, we had like I think it was about a hundred cap venue, like tiny little bar type vibes, and on the lineup we had um, Marabou State, Bondax, and Apple Bottom, and us as Eaton Messi. Uh, and we paid about 150 quid for the entire lineup. And like nowadays, if you got that, if you got that lineup, you'd be yeah forking out quite a few, quite a few coins. So like those were, I mean, yeah, people like the Maverick State guys and uh, Bondax, and obviously Disclosure, people like that at the beginning. Um, yeah, there's like the Golden Boy, people like that. There's there was just so many. It's like it's quite hard to kind of pull out the top ones from the top of my head right now but there was just it, so many people who even even if they that was their first incarnation like maybe they released some music uh that we supported that went on to do other projects as well that ended up being absolutely massive too so it was a real kind of it's a real like cool energy around all the people who were who were who we were supporting and did you dj as eaton messy DJs as well. Yeah, so me and me and uh, Charlie, who I did eat messy with, I do eat messy with. We um, we were like the kind of eat a messy DJs, so to speak. So we play as like residents on on our own show, but then we 
ended up getting booked outright for just you know for club nights and stuff like that as eating messy so because yeah, that that was as a sort of separate touring act like that that was a success in itself wasn't it big time man yeah i mean that was my first real taste of what it's like to kind of dj prop you know dj properly in front of big crowds and stuff like that and what what was the what was the crossover between that and then going into blonde well there was a moment unfortunately where i had to kind of like i had to take a bit of a a bit of a step back from me and messy in order to do blonde because i mean it was just it, it, the workload for one and two like you know the fact that my face was being familiarized with you know eating messy djs and and blonde yeah so I, there was a little there was a point where i had to kind of like take a bit of a step back from it but the guys that i set up eating messy with they're like some of my like, oldest pals and so it was like it was it was very they're all very understanding and it also meant that they they just kind of carried on the eating messy dj side of things while i was off doing the blonde stuff so it worked out all right and it's and eat messy's still going right are you still involved with it still going yeah i'm still i'm still involved i mean it's kind of it's not like um it's kind of gone into a place now where it's a little bit more a little bit more underground and it's a little bit more like less vocally kind of stuff and it's um it's a bit smaller but it's like in a place where we like where we like it and we're really enjoying the music that we're supporting but it's not as kind of like like traveling up and down the country doing these shows you know like times times moved on a little bit i think from those days but um yeah it's interesting man because it it seems like you've lived a few different lives within your within Dude, your career it's, <laughs> it's crazy like i said man it's like it's my my third fucking version of whatever now the pablo bravas thing but i do this this initial period when you've got you know the initial idea and all these exciting things happening happening at the beginning it's the best bit that's for me it's the most exciting part yeah and you obviously take your wealth of experience that you've you know in into that so it's a it's a different it's not like when you were starting from the very start isn't it exactly you know it's like it's um like everything that i've learned from the previous pro projects i always implement in the next one yeah. so it always gets better and better as, as time goes by or i like to think anyway yeah big time <laughs> But it's, honestly, man, it's been so interesting hearing hearing it about it, you know, because I don't think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I certainly didn't know, but I don't think many people know the sort of complete backstory because there's a lot, there's a lot that went on, wasn't there? Like, I mean, you do kind of like think, you know, when it's yourself and it's your own life, you think, oh, is this actually like that, that interesting? But then when you, when you talk it through, you're like, actually, there's been quite a few. You've done some mad stuff, man. Along the way. <laughs> yeah, big time, mate. Big time. It's been a pleasure. Like every single one of them, to be fair. Yeah, good, good. So and now obviously it's just it's your other stuff, your production, all that kind of stuff. And then like in terms of what the punter can see of you it's pablo pablo brava stuff right it's pablo bravas yeah that's the main focus now yeah good man well i'm looking forward to hearing hearing more of of that stuff um I've definitely been, I've man been in, i've been enjoying it and it's been great to hear to see you again after all this yeah, time dude. and to uh and to hear you know more about the story and kind of all the mad shit that you that, that you've experienced you know well, for sure. Well, hopefully we'll have to do another one of these like in about a year or so and I'll have loads more mad shit to report to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
that was Adam Englefield, aka Pablo Bravas, and previously of Blonde. Thanks so much to you, Adam, for sparing the time to record this with me and being so open and honest about everything. That's what I'm really trying to make with this podcast, something that digs a little bit deeper and really gives you the whole story of, a, of an artist's journey. If you haven't checked out the Pablo Bravas releases, then I suggest you do. Here's a couple of them out, and they're all really quite different from each other, from like breakbeat to more groovy house, and then some slightly deeper, more melodic vibes. Right, that's all from me. If you like the episode, please don't forget to leave a review and hit subscribe. I shall see you in the next one. Was that recording? I don't know if that was recording. Oh, for f- <laughs>